Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. to be here. It's exciting to, to get to celebrate uh, people going through covenant membership during COVID. You know, like if you think about it, some of those were during COVID, uh, right in the midst of all of that. And so to have a have God bless our church and allow our church to continue to grow, not just numerically, but like spiritual and in, uh, spiritually and then in spiritual maturity uh, is incredible to see. And so it's super fun. Uh, my name is Corey. For those of you that might not know uh, who I am, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to be your teaching pastor here for the next uh, couple of weeks. We're going to spend two weeks uh, looking specifically at, at the book of Ruth. And then three weeks from now, we're going to kick off a, a series in First Thessalonians. It's going to be our summer series. And David might talk a little bit more about this in a bit. Uh, but within that series, uh, we ask that you would continue to prioritize uh, the gathering. We've, uh, David's led a preaching cohort. And so we have four men that are going to get up here and preach that have never preached here before, stepping into one of the most vulnerable areas <laughs> that you could ever step into. Uh, and David's been walking with them for, I don't know, six, seven weeks, whatever it is, uh, 12 weeks by the time it comes. Uh, but they're going to get up here and preach. And so we're going to invite you guys, obviously, we're inviting you here and then online to watch, uh, but primarily to like, if they say something semi-funny, we just need you to laugh hysterically. Okay? <laughs> if they say Jesus, just say amen, okay? And then let's, let's let our brothers feel as if, man, they they're just crushing uh, that thing. Because it is an intense place to be up here. It's a scary place. Every week, I'm nervous, literally every single week that I have to get up here, and I've been doing it for seven years now. Uh, we're currently in a series called Lest We Turn, if you're new. And, uh, and in that, we've come through Judges, which is one of the darkest times in history. If you remember uh, David's sermon from last week, it was just, I mean, super dark time uh, in Judges. We began in the book of Joshua. And so, in short, here's kind of what we've seen uh, so far. Just follow along with me here. We began in Joshua. We hit Judges. What we've seen is that uh, the story began with the whole nation of Israel going to collect its land that was rightfully due to it. And it moved from the nation of Israel to just some of the tribes of Israel, then some of the soldiers of Israel, and then to Gideon and just 300 within Israel. And then it went all the way down to Samson. And then last week, there was just no one. It was like, it looked and felt as if there were literally no one living on mission alongside God anymore. It was the absolute most dark place you could possibly find within the history of Israel. What's interesting is that Ruth is given to us. And so as the author kind of lands this plane in this really dark history, Ruth kind of takes us back off a little bit and it reveals, Ruth reveals to us that God was moving and that God is moving within the context of Israel, even though it felt like God was not moving, God most certainly was because Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. And so as Ruth kind of takes us back off again, then we hit what's called 1 Samuel, which we'll get into in the fall and we'll continue our Lest We Turn series in 1 Samuel for the rest of the year. We're going to look at God bringing kings um, into Israel. And so what I want to do is I want to recap Ruth chapter 1 for you in about 60 seconds. Okay, there's going to be some humor here, but it was a really dark 
terrible time for this family. But I want to point out the irony that the author has given us. So Ruth is in a family, an ordinary family, just like uh, you or I would be in. And they were from the town of Bethlehem. I believe Carrie has this in a slide for me. They were from the town of Bethlehem, which meant the land of bread, but it was in a famine, which is really ironic. All of this is going to be ironic. There was a husband whose name was Elimelech, which meant God was alive, but he acted as if God was very much not alive. And so he moves his family from Bethlehem to a city of Moab, which means who's your daddy? Is that up there? Yeah, who's your daddy? Literally is what Moab meant. It was an incestual nation where they slept with everyone. No one knew who belonged to who. And so Elimelech uh, is married to a woman named Naomi, which means pleasant. She was anything but pleasant. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, who have very strong names, but the names literally mean sick and frail. It's like if you were to name your kid gangrene or flu. That's kind of what happens here, right? And so the names speak for itself. These names will not be up there. Those two men, sick and frail, are married to Ruth and Orpah, okay? Ruth was committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Orpah turned back, okay? It's not Oprah, it's Orpah, although I guess you could call her Oprah because she did profess to believe in God and then went back to what was comfortable. So there's a similarity there. Naomi and Ruth, Naomi and Ruth are all that is left in this family. Okay, they have each other, and then they go back to Bethlehem, the city of bread, because the famine has lifted. That's chapter one. The whole point of the book, uh, the whole point of the book is to reveal uh, this Hebrew idea of of an aspect of love that's called hesed, H-E-S-E-D, I believe they have for you as well. Hesed love is love as an action, Okay? It's not just love as an emotion. It's a continual outpouring of love. In the Hebrew, the word hesed would be uh, likened to like a raging river that's just kind of pushing through, and anything that gets in the way of this river just gets swept up in the river. This is the love that we've seen God reveal to his people in Joshua. This is the love that we've seen God reveal to his people in Judges, and now this is a love that we get to see um, further revealed in God's people. They're just simply modeling what God has modeled to them and what God has modeled for them. But it's not just love as an emotion, okay? We view love as an emotion. And then whenever I don't feel a certain thing from you anymore, I can just disregard you. That's our culture. This is love as an action. This is love that says no matter what you do, no matter how you respond to me, I'm going to continue loving you. Okay, that, is, that requires humility, That requires surrender. That requires letting go of everything. That's like a reckless abandonment of all things to reveal how much you've been loved by God to someone else. And so the big idea is that humility is the fuel for hesed. Humility is the fuel for hesed if you're a note taker or if you're online. I don't have three or four points for you. I'm just going to walk you straight through the narrative. Sound good? All right, here we go. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. You ready? Say ready. ready. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. That was her husband, whose name was Boaz. Boaz is a new character entered into the story for us. Boaz's name means a worthy warrior. And that's what we're going to see. Boaz is a righteous man. Boaz is a worthy man. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of chivalry. Chivalry was not quite dead in this area of his life anyway, in the area of this country. Boaz, Boaz is a provider. Boaz is a protector. Boaz, Boaz is everything. Listen, Boaz is everything that you would want in a man. 
Okay, Boaz is everything that you would put on ChristianMingle.com to attract a woman, but he's actually these things. <laughs> this is who Boaz is, a worthy man, a warrior. And listen here, eye contact, listen to me. Boaz is also Rahab's son. If you've been with us throughout this series, Rahab was the prostitute that um, let in the spies, let loose the spies that eventually led to the redemption of Israel. And this is her son. This is taking place during, the, during this time, right? Rahab, if you remember from that sermon, Rahab was a good mom. Remember? We came in and said Rahab was a good mom. Rahab has, Rahab has raised Boaz. That's hard to say. And what we know then is from Rahab has come Boaz. And at the end of Ruth, we'll learn that Boaz is going to give birth to Obed. And Obed's going to give birth to Jesse. And Jesse's going to give birth to King David. And King David will eventually, through the generations, give birth to whom? To Jesus. So this is just a part of Jesus's genealogy. That's what we see right there. Verse one, verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So Ruth, what she's done here, she's looked at the situation and she says, okay, we need some food. Like, we have got to survive. Remember, this family has lost everything. And in their culture, once the head of the family was gone, you had no more security, no more inheritance, no more 401k. Your retirement was gone. And so if you think about it like that, if the husbands were kind of the the social security, if I may, then gleaning what Ruth is about to go do was their equivalent to government welfare. It was like the equivalent of their food stamps. Now, I know a few things about food stamps. I was raised pretty poor as a little kid. We had food stamps growing up. Uh, It wasn't a card like you can swipe and it kind of just looks like a visa now, no big deal. People don't really pay any attention. It It looked like monopoly money. And maybe some of you grew up the way I grew up, and you grew up poor. But I remember going to local, the local gas station with my flip book of Monopoly money that my mom handed me to, get, to buy candy or to buy little juices with. Right? There's, it was embarrassing. And it was like, it, it requires humility. Even now, as a foster dad, I have a God-given like grant given to me called WIC, and I can use that, that they, the government has provided for me now to go buy stuff for our foster baby. And our culture has put such shame on folks that are in need, while I don't necessarily need those funds, I get to use them for our foster kid, I still feel a level of like embarrassment with that, it still requires some humility to provide for your family. And so the reality is, this is just a simple point here, is that there's no embarrassment in doing what you have to do to provide for your family. Okay? But there is some humility that's necessary to provide for your family. And so Ruth here is doing, is modeling humility that will fuel her hesed love, this love as an action. And so if gleaning was the food stamps, then Ruth, in humility, is just doing what's necessary for her family to survive. Does that make sense? According to the Jewish law, if we were getting to the book of Deuteronomy, whenever you were out farming, you were to leave whatever you dropped in the field, whether it would have been part of your harvest or whether it was one of your tools, so that those who were less fortunate than you could come along, pick those tools up or pick that food up. They could glean. They could um, kind of pull food out from the, the fringes of the field, if I may put it like that, and it would aid in their survival. So this is what Ruth is going to do. So verse three, so she set out, And she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, somebody say happened. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was one of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, somebody say behold. Behold. 
Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you, which was insane for them to say during this time. The narrator, two things happening here. The narrator's using a little bit of humor for us as he's um, kind of acting like it just happened by chance. But the Israelites, the Jews, they don't believe in chance, just like Christians also should not believe in chance. That should not be a part of our worldview. We should believe in God's sovereignty. Uh, we should believe in God's providential hand at work, whether we can see it or not. And so whenever the author writes, and behold, Bethlehem's famine just happened to be lifted. He's doing that on purpose. When he says, behold, Ruth just happened to stumble upon a field that just happened to be one of her relatives, right? He just happened to be kin to her her father-in-law. That's wordplay that the author is using. When he says, behold, Boaz just happened to come from the in-law's clan. That's all wordplay. Like everything here is happening so that whenever a Hebrew would read this, they would read, it just so happened that Ruth stumbled upon a field. Okay. Yeah, okay. It just so happened that the field belonged to Boaz. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, okay. Right? So like we don't get that because we're not first century Israelites. But this is the way that it is written, right? It just so happened that Boaz would just happen to be Rahab's son. And later from Rahab's genealogy and this man and this woman would come Jesus. Just so happened that way, right? We're like, yeah, okay, okay. So Bo shows up to work and he says, second thing here, may the Lord be with you. And what is the response? May the Lord be with you. One of you know it. Okay, good. At least one of you are Christian in the house. Great. The Lord, may the Lord be with you. And also Okay, more than one of you do know it. That's shocking because do you not remember how dark it was in Judges? And so there is like this little glimmer of hope, right? That there are some people who are still walking out covenant faithfulness. And so it just happened by chance that Boaz just happens to look out across his workers and he notices this woman who completely takes his breath away. If this were a romantic comedy... Right? Boaz would be like slowly looking up. Ruth's hair would be blowing in the wind. <laughs> Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You would come on. You know, the ladies in the room would be like, eating that Bible, like, what's going to happen? The little tears would be coming down. Right? Where do you think the movie Pretty Woman came from? Nothing original under the sun. He just happens to see her. Verse 5, here's what he says. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He's like, look at her like, my, my, I see you. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, from the country of Moab, who's your daddy. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves and the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short Rest. And so you need to understand that Boaz steps off this wagon at his very profitable business, and he basically sees a homeless woman, like a, a filthy, dirty woman's been working. If you know anything about working on a farm, she's been working on the farm all day. Her sundress has pit stains in it. Like she's kind of nasty, sweaty out there with her bandana on, you know, gleaning among the other folks that are homeless. And, and Boaz asks this really interesting question. You see, in our culture, we would ask, what do you do? Or where did you go to school? Or where did you go to college? We're trying to figure out identity when we ask those questions. Boaz asks a more interesting question. He asks, who does she belong to? Whose is this woman? Where does she come from? Who is her family? It's an interesting question, a striking question, because in that moment it reveals to us that Boaz does not know her and Boaz did not hire her. In this culture, if Boaz would have hired her, he would know her. 
He would know her whole family. He would know everything there is to know about her. And so she's ask, he's asking, who is her head? Who's the, the patriarch of her family? To which um, he learns and knows no one. Ruth is at the lowest portion of society that one could possibly be in. Check this out. I had them put it all on one slide for me. We're not going to have time to go through all of this, but I just want you to see this. There are 16 possible positions you could be in within their socioeconomic status of their culture. Ruth is at, you don't have to read it all, the very bottom. 16 possible places you could fall in there, and she is at the bottom. She's a female foreigner. She's a nobody. She's lower than a dog in their culture out there gleaning. And so it makes no sense. And yet, listen, it just so happened, right, just by chance, but not by chance at all, that this is what God is ordaining and orchestrating for this family. So listen to what Bo says. Let's continue carrying verse 8. Listen to what Bo says. I'm going to unpack it along the way. Verse 8. So Boaz says to Ruth, just listen to this man modeling this hesed love for her. Boaz says this, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen my, what, daughter, also crazy and fathomable for, her, for him to say that. What is he saying in that moment? You have no family. I'm going to provide for you family. Then he continues, do not glean in another field or leave this one. He's saying what? You have no way to provide for yourself. I'm going to be the one that provides for you. Then he pushes even further. He says, but keep close to my young women. He's saying, you don't have community. I'm going to, I'm going to give you community. Boaz is saying, I'm going to literally give you everything that you're lacking and everything that you came here to find can be found in me. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping, that the young women are reaping, and go after them, right? You want to make the most amount of money? Follow the women that I have here. They're going to take care of you as well. They're going to provide for you. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Again, recall last week, right? He's saying, have I not called, told the men not to sexually assault you? Rape was but a shadow away out there in the fields for these women. And so Boaz, this godly man, this warrior, he sets his eyes on this homeless woman. He then walks over to the men and he says, hey, men, hey, y'all, you men, you know the reputation of these Moabite women, don't you? And they're like, oh, yeah, we know. He said, you know what else? You know, I have a really big field and they'll never find your bodies. Don't touch this woman, right? Like she's completely like, have I not told them? Have I not commanded them? What is he saying? I will put you in the earth, period. There's like this, this crazy love that he has for them that makes no sense. And then it pushes even further. And he says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Also shocking, men don't draw water in this country, in this time, during this culture. Women drew water. And so for him, for him to even like, that's like so countercultural against his worldview for him to say, no, you drink what my men have drawn for you. She's the lowest person in society. It's crazy. It's crazy. I wish we had more time to get into it. But all that is important because now verse 10 makes sense. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes? She knows her position here. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? What do we see? Humility. Ruth recognizing just how low she is in society falls to her knees. Boaz simply modeling Hesed love, the same Hesed love that she modeled, that Ruth modeled to Naomi in chapter one that we didn't get to explore, this love as an action, both of them responding to what God has done for them. They're just responding to one another. Boaz is a godly man, is showing Hesed love to this woman. Listen, and he does it, listen, 
listen, men, before he even knows if she has a shot, he's just, this is just his character. He's just loving her. He's not loving her in hopes that she responds in some certain way to him. And so he's going to act a certain way to kind of be attractive to her for a season, only to find out five years later he was never really that man. Instead, right, he's modeling this hesed love to her. Listen, Boaz, listen, after loving God, loves Ruth. Boaz, after having a job and working hard and providing, then he pursues Ruth. Think about this. Boaz looked through all the workers and saw Ruth standing in the field. What would have been attractive about this woman as she's standing there in her sundress all pitted out, pit-stained and nasty? There's nothing really physically attractive about her. The only thing that was attractive about her is her character. It's literally the only thing that makes any sense as to why he would look at her and think anything positive. She has no ranking in society. She's completely dirty. She's filthy. She's filthy. She's literally dumpster diving at his workplace. And she looks at him and he looks at her and says, man, who she belong to? Attracted to her character. She's left her country. She's left her inheritance. She's left her livelihood. She's left her false gods, moved away from Moab into Bethlehem so that she could worship the one true God of all creation. Let me tell you what, that's attractive. What's more attractive than a godly woman, an honorable wife? What would be more attractive than that? It's interesting that we don't talk a lot about singles, so let me, let me talk to singles for just a second. As a single, let me ask you this. What was your, that is someone who's not married, just to be clear. What is your primary priority? Is it to find love? Is it to find a relationship? Or is it to look to the God who's already loved you unconditionally and to respond to him? This is what's happening here in the text, right? If more singles would respond first to God and then just simply take a look out across the field, there'd probably be a lot less, there would be a lot less frustration with being single. Maybe you don't see who God has directly in front of you because you've taken your eyes off of God. This is what's being revealed here in the text. What do singles normally do, though? They, they make a list, right? You make a list of who you want. You make a list of worse, what you think you deserve. You make a list, and typically whenever you make that list, you make a list of things that are about you, things that you think that you do well instead of things that would actually compliment you were you to be in a relationship with someone. Let's get this straight. Married couples, you do this as well. You've done it for five years in your marriage, 10 years of your marriage, 15 of your marriage. You're still writing out lists of things that you want that maybe God doesn't think you need to see. And so you overlook some of the best qualities of your significant other. Let me run this idea by you. I'm going to have them put it on the screen so it's crystal clear for you. Uh, check this out. Your list doesn't exist. As a single person or as a married person, your list, it's not on the screen yet, uh, it'll be up there in a second, so you can know that I'm being serious. Your list doesn't exist, okay? It doesn't exist. If you're single, your list doesn't exist unless you're looking for a slave. Then maybe you can find that. As a married couple, in your, let me just venture to say, your list probably doesn't exist either. What happens is when you take your eyes off of God, you start to look to yourself, and then you start to form your own opinion about who you think you need. It's dangerous. It's actually idolatrous, and it's deadly. So what I would say is, is this. I was thinking about this earlier. We've, I've only been married 11 years next weekend. Praise the Lord. Super happy about that. Yeah, thanks. Hopefully you cheer more next weekend when I get to preach. Um, Andrew and I have been together. My wife and I have been together for 13 years. Some of you more than us. Some of you much less than us. 13 years, I feel like we're making some good headway. That feels pretty good. Um, the reality is this, though. If I were to make a list 13 years ago of what I needed today, I mean, my list would, 
it'd be a waste. And we've had, we've had change of homes, change of locations, change of jobs. She just graduated grad school. She's starting a new career. We've had biological kids. We've had foster kids. All, every aspect of that, every time something new come into our family, my list needed to change. Listen, the reason your list doesn't exist isn't because your pastor's mean. It's because your list, whenever you create it yourself, is too short-sighted. You just don't know what you need. No one knows what they need when they enter into marriage. Right? If you, for those of you who've been married longer than me, you can look at your significant other and you can say, man, I've been married to the same person, sure, but they've been different people throughout the last 10, 13, 20 years. And so that list has to change. So here's what I would venture to say. I think if I were to give you some homework, I would say whether you're single or married, I would say make a list. But you just said don't make a, your list doesn't, I get it, just bear with me. I would say make a list. And I would make a list of all the areas of your life where you don't look like Jesus. And then I would start praying over that list. And I would ask the Holy Spirit to come in and sanctify you through the work of his word and through being held accountable by the community that you're in. Whether you're married or single, I would say, God, reveal to me areas of my life where I just don't look like Jesus anymore. And then write that list out. And then share that list with your significant other or with your missional community or whoever it is. And then I would encourage you then as a single to make a second list. But you just said don't. I get it. Okay. I'm lying. Okay. I get it. Make a second list. And here's what I would do. I would make a list of everyone that is in your sphere of influence that models godly character and maybe even models godly character that complements yours. That means they model godly character in ways that you don't. And write out their names. And then just start praying over that list and say, God, is one of these people the person you have just standing in the field in front of me? Like think about your missional community, your circle of friends, your Sunday gathering, the people you're in school with that are good, godly men and women, and just write their name down and then just start praying for them. But seek the Lord's face first in that and then someone else Secondly, this is all that Ruth and Boaz have done. Let's continue. Verse 11 says this. But Boaz answered her, verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and how and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you. He's praying a blessing over her. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, Ruth said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And so Boaz has done his research, right? He acknowledges everything that Ruth has done. He's been looking at her. He's checked in to Santa, see what's happening here. Boaz then does something that more Christians need to do whenever we pray. Boaz does this. Boaz prays a blessing, and instead of saying, hey, Ruth, uh, God bless you. I hope you find food, and I hope you find clothes, and I hope you find someone to make babies with. Ruth looks at, or Boaz looks at Ruth and says, hey, girl, I'm the guy to make some babies with. That's chapter four. He says, I'm going to be the one that meets the prayer, the expectations. He prays this prayer for Ruth, and then he says, oh, and by the way, I can meet every single thing that I just prayed for. Listen to me. There one of, our big, one of my biggest pet peeves is whenever a Christian says, I'll pray for you. Uh, normally you don't. Let's be honest. You turn and then you get on your phone and then that's gone. Let's be completely transparent with each other. Second thing that I find frustrating is whenever Christians pray prayers for their brothers and sisters and they have the resources to meet those prayers and then they don't use their God-given resources to meet the very prayer that they just prayed for their friend. The audacity to misuse God's resources in that way. And yet we do it all the time, not Boaz. Boaz prays this 
prayer, man. And then he looks in the mirror and he says, I'm the one to meet the prayer. See, sometimes God's hand of provision is invisible. Sometimes God's hand of provision is you. Right? You still with me? And so Boaz prays this prayer. Then he says, I'm going to be the one to meet the needs. I'm seeing the, the resources that need to come in here. I have those resources, and so I'm going to meet the needs for this woman. What is he doing? I'm, he's going to model Hesed love. Love as an action, not just love as an emotion. Listen, those two things do not exist, or Hesed love does not exist apart from humility. If you're going to truly model humility for your brother and sister and be the actual literal hands and feet of Jesus, you're going to have to surrender something. You're going to have to give up something. It's going to tax you in some way or another, but hopefully that you see that in there, this, this giving of himself, giving himself up for her and betterment. Verse 14, and then we'll be close to done. Verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, he's going to continue blessing her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, listen to this, let her glean even among the sheaves, just from whatever she wants is what he's saying, and do not reproach her. And also, and also pull some out from the bundles, the bundles that did not fall on the ground. Pull some out. He's saying, look, just take it and pull it out of the bags and just let it hit the ground so that she can have even more. And then do not rebuke her. And Boaz still isn't, he's not done. He invites her to eat, and she, in humility, doesn't even eat with him. She still eats with the workers. And then he looks at her and looks at them, and he's like, dude, just give her whatever she wants. She can have whatever she wants. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And then if we were to continue reading, which we won't for the sake of time, Ruth goes home and just tells her mom everything that happens. And she gives her food that was left over from the meal. She gives her the barley and everything that she had just picked up. And here's what we see in the story. And we're going to continue in this next week as it is one narrative. We see in a story is that God is a God of provision. That whenever God's people pray, he's a God who provides. He's a God who is sovereign. He's a God who's in control. He doesn't just... Um, do things by happenstance or by chance, but rather God has orchestrated every single thing that has happened. And God has provided for Ruth through this man whose name is Boaz, this mighty warrior that we'll learn even more about next week. And, and Boaz then is the redeemer that they had prayed for, that the family had prayed for. And the reality is like, we want to be Boaz. We want to be like warrior. We want to be strong. We want to be tough. We want to be people of provision. But more often than not, we're Ruth. Right? We're orphans. We're alienated. We're without resources. We're flirting with death. We're, uh, apart from Christ, right? we're at the lowest possible place uh, in society. And, and we act as if we're homeless whenever we've been given all the riches that we could ever imagine. We respond more often like Ruth than we re- would respond as Boaz. Even though we've been resources, Boaz has been resourced. And what God promises is a redeemer. Boaz is a foreshadowing of the perfect redeemer. Boaz is a foreshadowing of who we would call Jesus, right? We, like Ruth, are aliens in the land. We're aliens in this land, and yet God has provided us a family through the work of Christ. We, like Ruth, we settle for temporal provisions whenever God has given us eternal provision, eternally provided for us salvation and all things for him. We settle for being here as sojourners while we've been offered the kingdom of heaven, like the kingdom of heaven, church, and yet we feel like this is our home. And so the reality is like, we still need a redeemer. 
We should still be praying for our Redeemer to come. And he has come first and foremost. This Jesus has most certainly come. And what has he done? This Jesus has come and he looked out across creation, listen, and saw us. Tattered, standing in a sundress, pit stains and all. Sweaty messes that we were. Alienated and disconnected from him. The Father, listen to us, through the Son, looks at us and says, who do they belong to? And instead of saying they deserve hell and separation because they most certainly do not belong to me, he says, I'm going to pave a way for them. I'm going to actually be the one to redeem them. I'm going to live a perfect life that they can't live, and I'm going to take the death that they deserve so that I can model for them what love actually looks like. Not love as an emotion, church, but love as an action. Like, what would, it, what, would have, what, what would our salvation be like if Jesus just showed up and said, man, love you guys? Nothing. It would be nothing, right? So it's not enough for Jesus to show up and say, I love you, because if you show up and say, hey, I love you, but then all of a sudden someone's mean to you like we weren't mean to Jesus, that love fades away. And so Jesus models for us true, authentic, hesed love. Love is an action. That's why he goes to the cross, Anybody can show up and say, I love you. We abuse that word all the time too. And yet Jesus shows up and says, I love you. Let me show you how much I love you. And then he dies and he resurrects and then he sends us a spirit. He could have stopped at his death and resurrection, church. But no, he gives us an abundance. He gives us his Holy Spirit. The very power that spoke creation comes into us whenever we experience salvation. We have more than we could ever eat, more than we could ever drink. Right? leftovers beyond our imagination. And that could have been enough, but he adopts us into his kingdom so that we're no longer aliens or orphans. Gives us everything that, is, that belongs to the Son is then given to us. Check this out. Stay with me. I'm going to read Philippians for you, and we'll enter into communion. Stay. We'll allow Philippians to introduce communion for us today. If you were not able to grab a cup, there should be some cups in the baskets up here in the front. Philippians says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalt, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen and amen. Who is this? This is Jesus, our Redeemer. This is Jesus, our provider. This is Jesus, our sustainer in every single way. And so as we enter into communion, right, what that little wafer and what that cup remind us of is that Jesus was not satisfied with just saying, hey, I love you emotionally, but rather he goes to the cross to say, no, 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 I love you as an action. You're going to see my hesed love. It's going to come through my humility. And as we respond as Christians here in communion, we're actually reminded of these truths. And then we're encouraged in that moment through repentance and faith to model the same humility that God wants and continues to model for us. And so as a Christian, you know, the simple question would be, are you willing to respond with that humility today in response to what Jesus has done to you? And likewise, then for the not yet believer in the room, I would ask the same question. Are you ready to and willing to respond in humility to who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has done 
for you. There's no love like this that exists in our world. He's the only one. You guys can take communion when you're ready.